Greetings, sapiens. This is Chance Gilliam, welcoming you to the Chance by Chance podcast. Our guest today is Dr. Richard Kite, the director of the D.B. Reinhardt Institute for Ethics in Leadership at Vertebo University in La Crosse, Wisconsin. He teaches a variety of ethics courses relating to business, leadership, and the environment. He's the author of three books and a featured columnist in the La Crosse Tribune. Dr. Kite received his PhD in philosophy from the Johns Hopkins University in 1994. One of his main focuses is the steady erosion of civic engagement in America, from voting to participation in service organizations and volunteering. We look at the symptoms and causes of this decline and discuss ways to restore health by reversing that trend, some of which the youth have already set into motion. You can find links and resources in the show notes to this episode. But for now, please enjoy my conversation with Dr. Richard Kite. Dr. Kite, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, I am so happy that you agreed to doing this. As I've told you, uh, I'm new to the city of La Crosse. I'm exploring, and we connected at Soup the other day, and I'm glad to have made a connection already. Right. It's good. Yeah. yeah. So you are the director of the ethics department here at Viterbo University. Can you tell me what attracted you to the field of ethics and what made you want to pursue it professionally? Oh, that, you know, that's a great question because when I was an undergraduate in college, I was studying philosophy just because I thought it was really interesting. I had some good professors, um, but I didn't take any courses in ethics, partly because I didn't. I thought there were really important questions about how to live and how to live well. And I didn't trust any of my professors to, to, to be good guides on that topic. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so like, going into ethics as, you know, as a teacher of ethics was not something I ever really considered. And yet when I went to graduate school, I found it was just fascinating, this question of um, what is a good life and what is a meaningful life and, or a flourishing life. And, and especially when I discovered the ancient Greek philosophers, Aristotle, Plato, and Socrates, and this, all of ethics uh, for them is about the virtues. How do we develop these character traits that allow us to be happy, hmm. right? And ethics for them was not about duty or responsibility and so forth. That's kind of secondary. Those questions come up. But the main question is, how do you live a flourishing life? And um, I thought, well, you know, that seems like a question that we should all be asking. And we, we shouldn't get to graduate school before we start asking those questions. We should be addressing those things uh, from a very early age, hmm. right? Um, from, you know, kindergarten and, and, you know, first, second, third grade, you know, like what are, what are the ways of living that will make us happy and that will also make our, our communities flourish? And uh, so that's what I ended up studying. I studied moral development and with a look at how do we develop the virtues. And that's how I got involved. And I started looking for teaching positions, you know, a place where I could uh, teach courses that dealt with that. Yeah. What you said about asking that question and needing to ask the question of how do we live a flourishing life before reaching graduate school. I know you've done some work along the lines of civic engagement. I read about how our infrastructure has somewhat diminished as time has gone on. Can you maybe explain what you mean about reversing the process of that uh, deterioration of our of our civic lives and uh, right. what role ethics plays in that? 
very yeah, well. Yeah. Good question. Well, yeah, but it's it's a really important. I think it's it is the kind of defining question of our age is how can we re-establish civic engagement hmm. in our communities? That is, how can we make our communities healthy again? Because what we've done is we, we've had a focus uh, for the, especially the last hundred years on how do we increase individual power and individual freedom, which means how do we become less dependent on our neighbors to meet our needs? But the less dependent we become on our neighbors means the less we need community in order to satisfy our individual needs and wants, you know, and the less we have to be engaged with others. Well, that all comes at a cost. So we've had, you know, if, if you think about the path of technology, mm -hmm. entertainment, how do we make entertainment more individualized? So I don't have to go to a theater to see entertainment. First of all, I can... Early on, it was I can go to a movie house. We can have one in every town, right? And then it's can have it on TV or radio, so I don't even have to leave my house. Now it's I can have it on my phone, yeah. my laptop, or my iPad, right? And so I don't even have to leave my room. We can have you know five people in the household, and we're all watching our individual show. We don't have to engage with anybody, and which in some ways we don't have to disagree about what we're going to watch, how we're going to be entertained, right? But um, we miss the development of the relationships. And what we find out is what makes people happy is meaningful relationships. How can we be happy as individuals if we get what we want, but we get it in a way which doesn't allow us to develop relationships, which is actually what we should want because that's what makes us happy? Okay? It's a conundrum. <laughs> that's a conundrum. Yeah. So we've had all this focus on the development of technology to increase individual freedom and power. We've done that to a great extent, and it's accelerating, and yet we find out we're becoming less and less happy. Higher rates of mental illness, of depression, higher rates of suicide, especially among uh, people who we often think as the most privileged and most affluent and powerful in society, uh, middle-aged white males. We have increasing rates of suicide and depression among that group. They're the only demographic wh whose uh, lifespan has declined over the last decade. Hmm. It, it, um, everybody else, uh, lifespans keep increasing. That group has gone down. You know, so we have That's to ask, strange. Yeah, it is strange. So why is this happening? We have to think, well, what are we doing wrong? And, and one of the things we're doing wrong is that we're, we're, we're losing our communities, our civic engagement, our engagement with one another, right? And that happens through institutions, hmm. through getting involved. We get involved, you know, we get involved at work, we get involved at, at home with family, but then there's something that's known as third places, right? Not home, not work. Those are the first two places. Third place, where do we go to form friendships? Where do we go to socialize? And, and if you look at third places, uh, the places where people go to become and get on a regular basis to form friendships outside of work and home, hmm. Those places have steadily diminished over the last 50 years. And as an example, this could be like the corner pub, for example, or something like that. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. They tend to be places like, yeah, like uh, pubs, cafes, mm -hmm. uh, churches, very important third places for many people. Um, could be libraries. Um, uh, there's, there's a number of gathering places, mm -hmm. but these are the, you know, this is where you get... Um, civic engagement kind of taking root. 
because what it does is it, it's, um, it forms habits of going out and interacting with strangers. Right? And so that's what, that's what we need to do. We need to recover that in our, in our society. How do we even begin to recover that, though? I mean, it seems like community is dependent on everyone. I, I guess you could stay, say it starts with one person, but, but if I today start to uh, go to the library, whatever events they host, and that becomes my third place, I mean, that's a very, very small contribution to the community as a whole. Is there any way in which we could bring everyone around to that realization more quickly than just depending on that, that trickle of individuals? Yeah, that is a, that is a tough thing. Um, a couple things. There is, there is now a kind of, a, I would say, an increasing trend of young people, people in your generation, uh, seeking to live uh, closer together in more compact urban areas, to rely on public transportation and walking and biking and things, but um, buying their food locally. Mm-hmm. Um, there's more of this kind of engagement. And this is kind of a movement. And so there is that kind of trend. The other thing is now we have all kinds of research. We know like what makes a happy life, for example, <laughs> and we know what makes an unhappy life. Okay, so going straight home from work, uh, drinking a few beers and watching TV, and then going, waking up in the morning and going to work again—that's <laughs> going to make a person unhappy. We know that. There's all kinds of data on it. Um, we know that long commutes. Uh, if you leave everything else in your life the same except you, say, move into your dream house, which is located next to 30 minutes away from where you work, farther than it used to be, mm-hmm. you will become less happy because you've added an hour of commuting to your day every day. <laughs> and what that means is you have an hour less of free time that you could be involved in some kind of volunteering or some kind of service organization or something where you form friendships. And so we know that, so if you want to be happy, you have to intentionally say, okay, I have the freedom through technology and everything else to isolate myself and to kind of shape my own life the way I want it. But if I'm going to be happy, what I have to do is join. Hmm. I have to say, okay, where am I spending my time, especially my free time? Um, who am I spending that with? Am I making friendships? Am I doing something that I regard as meaningful with that time? And if I'm doing those things, I'm going to be happy even if at certain individual points, I don't get what I want. Over the long term, I'm going to be happier. And so there's all kinds of research on this and so forth. So we kind of know what it takes. And so for, I can just give you an example. So a few years ago, I realized um, um, here I am, I'm, here I'm a um, middle-aged male. Um, one of the problems middle-aged males have is they don't have a, a large number of friendships, especially once their kids get to a certain age. And they aren't interacting with other adults because they're going to their kids' sporting events or something like that. Hmm. Um, so I had to talk to some other friends and say, let's get together one morning every week for breakfast. And you were ju- you're just coming from that today, you told me, before we yeah, started, and right? Yeah, breakfast this morning. We've been doing this for six or seven years now. <laughs> but, but what I realize is you have to intentionally do this, hmm. right? Because um, uh, for most of us, if... if if we have a little bit of freedom in our lives, we've got the ability to um, isolate ourselves, right, and do things on our own terms. And we have to surrender that, say, okay, I'm going to make a commitment. Every Tuesday morning, um, I can't schedule other things. I can't just do what I want. I make a commitment to be with that group of friends. And over time, that's 
going to pay back benefits. Hmm. Yeah, you reap what you sow. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. 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 Um, so using this as a transition to <laughs> talk about a community gathering, uh, soup, right. the, the place that we met. Um, I'm going to give my best recap of what the event was, and you can you can correct course afterwards. We'll see how much I learned. Yeah, good. Um, so I saw this online, explorelacrosse.com, looking for events around me while I'm here. Paid $5 for entrance. It was behind the root note, downtown lacrosse. It seemed like there were a few hundred people there at the very least, which was more than I expected, but really good to see. Right. Um, so $5 bought me soup, bread, and a vote. And there were four presentations of four minutes, and they each got four audience questions as well, um, something that benefits the city of lacrosse. And then we, we all had our vote at the end, put it in one of four buckets, and that winner took home the pot. Right. Is, right. That, is that everything? That's it. That's everything? That's it. That's it, and it's, it is a way for um, for groups that have an idea, but maybe aren't large enough really to do some big grant. You know, it's a mm-hmm. small project or something they'd like to try out. And they can make a pitch to the community and say, hey, "Would you support this?" So, like the one that won was having a tote of household items for young people who are transitioning from foster care into their own space for the first time. Yeah, and lots of times they don't have enough. They don't have house, basic household supplies, right? Hmm. Um, so this would kind of get them started. It would be something of their own to start their house. Well, it's it's a nice thing. It's not the sort of thing that when you consider all the needs in the community, it's not going to go very high up on the priority list. You know, so, so, so organizations like United Way or whatever it is aren't going to put it way up there in the funding. But it's still a, an interesting thing to do and see how it works out. Yeah. Um, and the organization made a very successful pitch, and they ended up getting nineteen hundred dollars to yeah. start this out. Right? It's it's a good thing, but it's all it's also the event itself brings everybody together to focus on what is good for our community. Hmm. And I think that might be the most important thing about soup is just that it gets all these strangers together to come and focus on what is good. That it's not about me individually. It's what is good for our community. Hmm. Yeah. How, how long has this been going on? Two events each year. It started last year. No, it had been going on for a couple of years. Uh, the the group ran into some some trouble and so d- didn't operate last year, and so it just got reformed. So it's just okay. starting with new new leadership, mm-hmm. uh, new board of directors, and new procedures and so forth. So. What you saw was kind of the restart or the reboot of the organization. And I loved it. So if I were to, in any way, mimic that event in, let's say, the Twin Cities, can you talk about any uh, road bumps that you've like run into with either the people presenting or, or the audience engagement or anything like that? Um, anything I could circumvent sure. if I try this myself? Well, well, there are a number of cities, half a dozen or so, that do soup. So this isn't something that we originated. Okay. It's something that we copied from what other cities are doing. So okay. this name soup, is kind of, there's kind of a, a movement, but it's still fairly small. Um, so looking at what they've done, and then the, the biggest issue is you're, you're dealing with cash and you're dealing with money. You want to have some financial accountability. So making sure that you have a number of people who are um, like a board who can be accountable hmm. for this. And so the organization spent a long time getting people together who 
on on the board. We've got a, a we've got a lawyer. We've got a marketer. You know, we've got somebody who works in a credit union. So we've got all these people that kind of can handle the different aspects of organizations. Um, and then then the idea is then when you've got to get interesting pitches. You've <laughs> got to make sure that they're. Um, and so I think we had about eight proposals, and each time we'll select four. Mm-hmm. Um, and so those four uh, pitches, because you want your best ones. You want all ones that sound credible, that have a shot at getting money, and then can go ahead. And so, so understand, you know, we had a lot of work behind the scenes of getting the procedures. And, and I've been serving as an advisor to the group, but there's a, there's a board that spent some real time uh, kind of fine-tuning what will the procedures be, what is the accountability for how the money is spent, uh, how will the groups report back. And so uh, what we'll have at, at events coming up is past winners will come back and tell everybody gathered, you know, that this was is cool. how we've used the money. That was yeah. really cool. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and switching gears again, just keeping an eye on the time, uh, I, I want to talk about your column. You do, it looked like a bi-weekly column for the right. Lacrosse Tribune. Are you totally allowed to just run in any direction you want? And if so, how are you uh, choosing topics of conversation in, you know, what you find important? Yeah, I started writing a regular uh, column uh, in the opinion page of the Lacrosse Tribune about six years ago. Uh, what I wanted to do is uh, write a column that would address within the subject area of ethics generally, so living a good life, mm-hmm. um, but that would do it in a way that that um, would not invite the reader to either boo or cheer within the <laughs> first paragraph. Because this is a problem in our politics right now. You read most uh, political opinions, uh, and you know right away whether you're going to be in agreement or disagreement with what the author is saying. Yeah, just from the title most usually of the time. The, usually from the title. <laughs> and, and we're so polarized right and left that then, then you can pretty much turn off your brain. You don't have to think anymore because then you're reacting. Either you like it or you don't like it, right? Hmm. And so I, um, there are all kinds of questions about um, how we live responsibly in this world, how we treat one another and so forth, that are really difficult to puzzle through, um, that are, you know, and that, that, I, that I puzzle with, that I, you know, I try to figure out. And so I thought, I'm going to write a column where I try to really think about what I'm going to say, <laughs> and I don't make it a line up with line up with just politically right and left. Um, mm. So, for example, right, I've I've got one due that, that will be published on Sunday, um, and I'm writing about graffiti in natural spaces. We have we have bluffs around here, yeah. hiking trails and so forth, and one of the well-known bluffs, Miller, Miller Bluff. Um, if you walk along the trail, at some point the trail kind of curves around and you come to this beautiful overlook where you see the Mississippi River Valley and the city of La Crosse. And then behind you is this limestone cliff extending up about 100 feet or so. And it, the first 20 feet of it is covered with graffiti. Hmm. Um, and it's really, it's bright and it's colorful and it's, it's spray painted scribbles all over this beautiful limestone face. And you kind of think, well, you know, on the one hand, you know, why, why would anybody do this? You've got this beautiful area. I mean, I can understand. I don't agree with it, but I can understand. You know, some <laughs> buildings. You know, like yeah. you know, like old warehouses and things. Yeah. Um, but why this limestone rock, this outcropping that 
that is beautiful in its own right, why cover it with scribbles? I've just been thinking about that for a long time, and then it, it occurred to me, um, hiking on the trail one day, there's a part of the trail that comes out from a road, rim of the city road, and I'm walking past all these big homes, and they've all carved a space out of the top of the ridge with big lawns and homes. Hmm. And they've, they've disfigured the landscape. They've made their own mark. Now, we don't think of those as blights on the landscape, the way we think of somebody's spray-painted markings, right? Interesting. But, yeah. but yeah. Uh, the, what we do to the, to the natural world, we always want to make our mark, right? And lots of times we consider the marks that we make if we have money and resources and things and we do it in a way that looks pretty, we say, that's good, hmm. right? And the people that are doing graffiti or other things that, you know, we say, well, that's, that's bad. And I actually think, and it is bad, but the question is, <laughs> like, why? Yeah, right? yeah that's and critical what thinking. What makes the difference? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm just puzzling through this. Hmm. What an opportunity. I mean, just to, to take that and, you know, have a voice for it in the paper. That's cool. That is really cool. And you said you, uh, you like to do your writing down by the river Yeah. most yeah. of the time. You, uh, you have a few books under your belt now, too, don't you? Uh, three books? Yeah. One is a collection of my first four years of columns, mm -hmm. so about 100 columns on, on a range of topics. Wow. And then the other two are, are more kind of traditional ethics textbooks. One is called An Ethical Life, which is just sort of an introductory ethics book. And the other one is called Ethical Business, which is really on culture. How do you establish an ethical culture in an organization? But what distinguishes the textbooks is um, that I've been writing for a long time for newspapers, trying to write in a conversational manner. And I've written the textbooks with that tone. Most textbooks are really hard to read. Yeah, <laughs> right, I hear you there. Right? And um, so what I tried to do is is write some books that um, were written with a heavy emphasis on stories and in a manner which would be engaging for the general public. Um, because my great challenge for any class I teach is actually getting my students to read, <laughs> read the assignments. Uh, because we are, um, our society, we just aren't readers anymore. Hmm. People, you know, uh, book sales are still going strong, but people aren't reading nearly as much as they were 10, 20 years ago. That doesn't really make sense. Book sales are fine, but people don't read? Yeah, yeah. It, <laughs> they it, just look at them. Yeah. Well, we've, we've become distracted readers. Uh, sure. And um, a lot of it has to do with uh, electronics. Um, it's, it's very hard for people to engage in what's called deep attention right now. This is where you like sit down with a book for an hour or two hours and become completely absorbed in it. Mm. And I even find this difficult to, um, I'll, I'll read for about five, ten minutes and then be checking my phone to see what I missed. And, um, and what happens is the, br the brain just doesn't become engaged at the same level. You know, I actually, uh, I listened to a podcast from NPR on, on deep work, you know, revolving around not checking your phone while you're trying to get significant work done. Right. Um, but a question I'll pose to you, does uh, that deep state also apply to something like using your phone? We think of reading a book, for instance, um, and you could have a deep attention if you 
just sit and read and do that. It wouldn't be deep if you check your phone and look back at the book. Right. Um, but let's say you're just scrolling on your phone and you do that for an hour. Is that like the same kind of deep attention? No. No? No, it's not. It, because scrolling on your phone, you're moving from one thing to another. Mm-hmm. And so you're staying engaged at a fairly superficial level. Hmm. So you're doing one task, right? Um, but it's not creative work, right? And so the deep work is where you're really doing some creative Usually, uh, sometimes creative work, but sometimes um, just deep attention. It's a different quality of focus. Sure. Like constructing a story in your head as you see words on a page versus, you know, checking a social media feed and each clip is uh, distinct from every other one. Yeah. Kind of tying it all together with some rapid fire questions, if you will. Sure. Uh, I heard you grew up in the town of the world's largest turkey. Oh, yeah. Is, is, this, a, is this a real turkey or a sculpture turkey or what kind oh, of turkey a, is it's it? A, it's a big fiberglass turkey. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's the world's largest fiberglass turkey. And where is this? Somewhere in Minnesota. Yeah, Frazee, Minnesota. It's on, on <laughs> Highway 10 uh, between Detroit Lakes and, and Perm. Which is a, <laughs> if you're driving from Minneapolis and you go up to like, uh, Little Falls, and, you know, that direction towards Fargo. Mm-hmm. It'd be about 60 miles east of Fargo. Keep an eye open for the turkey. Yeah, there's a big billboard on the sideway. <laughs> turn, you know, turn, you drive a you know, half mile down the road, um, the exit towards Frazee, and you'll come to the turkey in a park. It's actually the second turkey because the first one uh, caught on fire. Oh, gosh. They were trying to repair oh, it. <laughs> <laughs> trying to repair it. They had a couple of guys from the auto body shop. Um, um, tried to cut off the metal supports, which were rusting. It was the turkey was about to tip over, hmm. and uh, and you know, and if you know the big turkey tips over in the park, it could roll down the hill and kill hundreds of people who were there to see the turkey. Runaway right? turkey. Yeah, yeah. So uh, <laughs> cutting off these supports, uh, they started it on fire, and it was uh, got all the town's fire departments there were gathered. To, to put out the fire, and then they had to raise money for another turkey, of course. What a so. chain of events. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Um, and growing up there with your family, uh, mm-hmm. can you tell me about any particular lessons that your parents or um, influential mentors imparted on you? Well, I grew up in, the, in this time, you know, in the 60s. I was born in 1962. So the 60s and early 70s were in the small towns in the Midwest. There's a really kind of robust community where there's a whole a whole bunch of adults. You know, that, and I wouldn't say that, it's not that any particular adults were, were great role models or anything else, but there was a mutual accountability. Hmm. So you'd, I'd ride my bike down the street with other kids and, and everybody knew who everybody else is. Hmm. So, so there's a great, as a child, we had a great amount of freedom. Uh, go out in the morning and uh, ride bike and go off all day, you know, come back at noon, grab a sandwich, go back out, go <laughs> swimming or fishing, whatever we wanted to do. There was just a great deal of freedom. The, the summers were completely our own, our own time and so forth when we were young. Wow. And then there were all these organizations that adults took responsibility for, Vacation Bible School at church and Cub Scouts and 4-H. And... And most kids belong to these organizations, you know, cause, because that's all you had to do. There wasn't much for TV or anything else. You, you had to 
join, you had to belong. Hmm. And, but in the course of doing that, you interacted with both kids and adults. Now, my father was a house painter. His dad had been a house painter. His dad before him had been a carpenter. This was our family. They were, you know, my other grandfather was a turkey farmer. We didn't have much money. Um, there hadn't been much education. I'm in a small town. You know, there's not a lot of highly educated people in the town and so forth. And yet, because of the way life was constructed with a great deal of community involvement and interaction among all people in the community, there was opportunity for, for movement. I could come from a family of fairly modest means and have aspirations to go to college because I wanted to, right? Because, and because I was able to interact with adults, um, even in that small town, some adults who had had experience of living in different places, who had, who had traveled to Europe or who had you know, studied different things. And, and I, as I got older, say into uh, junior high and high school, I was able to talk to them about and, and see something about their way of life. Hmm. So this social mobility, you know, kind of vertical movement, which was possible even for somebody from a, a back, very modest background is something that's really important. And see, this is what civic engagement gives us. It, it especially it gives kids the opportunity to kind of explore different ways of life, to kind of imagine what kind of life could I make for myself? Um, and then interact with people that might help them achieve it. So when it came time for me, for example, to consider going to college, I, I mean, I, I had done very little traveling, um, uh, and I had, I had only been out of the state one time, when 12 years old, we had taken a family trip to Montana. Other than that, you know, a big trip would be go to Fargo in North Dakota. Right? <laughs> um, but I was able to talk to other people about, like, 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 what is college life like, and how do I apply, <laughs> you know? They want this essay. How do you write those? You know, and talk to people. You know that sort of thing, and yeah. get help, right? Yeah. Um, so that was all. That was all really important. Of all the trends in our society, we, you know, we opened up talking about the civic engagement part. If you don't have a community that's really engaged with where the adults are interacting with one another across class boundaries. We talk a lot in our society about race boundaries and sex boundaries and things like that. The big difference is class. If you don't have people from different classes interacting with one another, then the children don't interact with other classes and especially with adults from other classes. Hmm. And it's very hard for them to move. Uh, so that social mobility is really important. So that's why you need to create community events where you get everybody there. What advice might you give your 18-year-old self or anywhere around that time? Well, I, you know, I was very fortunate to have parents who did not place a lot of expectations on me. Now, this is one of the benefits of coming from a modest background is they had no, um, I had no pressure to say to seek a professional life or to make a lot of money or do anything else because Everybody in my extended family had, you know, um, was pretty much working class. And so that was fine. 
Um, but if I wanted to do something different, I had the freedom to do it. Hmm. The main thing that they just they just encouraged me to pursue what I love doing, hmm. and so I did. I mean, I took that really seriously, and I kind of fell in love with philosophy. And I said, "Well, I'm just going to keep studying philosophy. I may never get a job at it, but that's okay. I know how to paint houses. I know how to fix things. I, you know, it always get work. That's not the issue. <laughs> I've got a few years here to to actually pursue what I love, and then I can go and do work." So I, I kind of took that path without having any idea. Now here's the problem. Um, if it were my 18-year-old self today, because the world is so much different. Even, even, even 40 years ago, when I was, say, in high school and planning a career and so forth, mm -hmm. there were predictable paths. Because we had, our, our society was formed by these institutions which are fairly predictable. You know what? Three generations of people who had built houses and worked on houses and so forth, that fairly predictable. And I started working for my dad, painting with him when I was 10 years old in the summers, you know, and I kind of learned that trade, right? So I could, I could see that and I could follow that. But there were other things. I thought, you know, so if I go to college and I, say, go to graduate school and get a doctorate degree in philosophy, I could teach philosophy because there are universities that hire professors and that's what they do. That was a predictable path. My roommate, wanted to be a doctor, and so he went into pre-med, and then he went to medical school, he followed a predictable path, right? I had another good friend who wanted to be a teacher, you know, and got her training in that. Here's the problem right now. Um, none of these institutions are stable. <laughs> it's a big problem. <laughs> it's, a, it's a huge problem, because it's not a matter of, of being your age, of just figuring out what do I want to do, hmm. Um, it's what can I do that will even be there in the same fashion in, say, four to five years when I graduate? And then what will be there in that, because the cost of education has gone up so much, what will be there for at least 10 to 20 years more so that I can repay my loans, repay that investment? And you ask right now, which institutions are stable enough to have the same positions doing the same things that I might prepare for in 20 years? And we have no idea what they'll be. Yeah, and we're in such a tough position, too, because people give um, still such high credence to that infrastructure. It is not stable, but people still act or believe as though it is. I, I, right now, what's, what is really declining in colleges and universities is enrollment in traditional liberal arts disciplines. So philosophy, history, English, these sorts of things. Um, and, and yet I think those are the ones that are probably the most valuable right now. Hmm. Because what they do, they're the, they're the ones where you don't train for a specific role in society, but what you do is you prepare yourself to, for a certain kind of thinking and um, presentation, the ability to write right, and mm. communicate, these sorts of things, which no matter what role you might occupy during your lifetime will always be valuable. The, the ability to be constantly learning, to have both the attitude and the habit, right, of, of learning on a, reg, on a regular basis, continual basis, um, this is what prepares you to fulfill a multitude of roles that are always changing. So 
I think college education is just as valuable, maybe more valuable than ever, um, but in a way that is increasingly less recognized as valuable because we find fewer people seeking that traditional kind of liberal arts hmm. degree and they're pursuing much more narrowly defined professional degrees. And um, those are the ones that where what people are training for is going to change pretty rapidly. And that's this is where the questions come up. I think that's a good place to leave it for today. I'll share some links to your writing, both the column and the books, and the show notes to the episode. Is there anywhere else you want you want people to find you if they're if they're looking for more information? Um, no, I, if they go to viterbo.edu, um, they could find my information there and the work of the Reinhardt Institute. That's uh, that's where I do most of my work. So yeah, awesome. Be great. Well, Dr. Kite, thank you again for the time. It was Pleasure. awesome talking to you. Pleasure to talk to you. To learn more about Chance by Chance please visit chancebychance.com. And while you're there, check out the support page. It is your support that makes this possible. Until next time, thank you for listening.